welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Mark Smith, and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. Since releasing her first solo single on Ninja Tune in 2009, Emma Jolly, who's better known as Emika, has taken Bristolian electronic pop into the 21st century. She draws on a background in piano, digital signal processing, and golden era dubstep. And after releasing two well-received LPs on Ninja, she's gone completely DIY. Since 2014, she started her own label, released an album of piano pieces, and recorded her first full-scale symphonic work, which her fans helped fund with a Kickstarter campaign. And when I spoke to her recently in Berlin, it's clear that she's learned a lot from being independent. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at resonantadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with Emika is up next. people jump straight to Bristol with you, but you actually come from Milton Keynes, Yeah. apart from your Czech heritage. What was it like growing up there? Well, it is a really new city. It was basically invented in the late 60s, the concept of the city itself and how it should grow and become a new city. And it was actually really interesting growing up there because everything was new. Like there was no theatre or, or art gallery until I was almost leaving around age 16. And I actually, in hindsight, credit Milton Keynes for the reason why I became so creative because me and my friends had nothing to do but come up with things to do. And we all really loved music and we all kind of could play different instruments and we used to just hang out like outside the shops or in the parks, kind of like smoking and making music or uh, looking in music magazines or going to London a lot. And so we became quite like, we were kind of like street kids. Like we were traveling a lot, being like really young on the like big trains to London and back and getting into clubs underage. And I kind of credit Milton Keynes for my creative growth as a teenager because it was so fresh and clean and you really had to come up with something to do at the weekend because there was nothing. So there was no clubs or cafe. There wasn't even any cafes, you know, there was like nowhere to go. But at the same time, it was clean and beautiful and fresh and inspiring. And there's lots of nature there and parks and uh, this combination, you know, it was really nice, actually. So you said it was uh, at age 16 that you moved to Bristol? Um, it was 18 that I moved to Bristol to study. Did you have any expectations of the city beforehand? Yeah, I mean, I actually decided I wanted to go and live in Bristol. And then I looked to see what I could study there. And that's when I found creative music technology, Bachelor of Arts degree at Bath Spa. You know, me and my, my dad's really into transport and we like worked out that I could get a bus between the cities and I wouldn't have to live in Bath and I could live in Bristol. And, you know, I was cool with traveling around already. Yeah, so I just decided to go to Bristol because the whole scene there really interested me and I loved the music that had come from Bristol, like, you know, throughout my teenage years. And I just felt like a really strong connection with the whole vibe of the music. I felt like there was some kind of creative home for me there and I wanted to go and explore 
I mean, I didn't think these things at the time. I just thought, yeah, cool, I'm going to go to Bristol and I don't care about anything right now. You know, it sounds very elegant now when I talk about it and reflect on it. How do the expectations stand up against the reality? Well, it totally blew my mind because when I got there, I was expecting to find like drum and bass and trip hop and all this kind of stuff. But actually it was the beginning of dubstep and dubstep didn't even have a name and there was hardly anyone making it. There was just like a few people in London and a few people in Bristol. And I bumped into, now I was kind of, I kind of had like this huge crush on these cool guys that I'd met that lived in this flat together and like smoked a lot and worked in records shops and stuff. And I just thought like, yeah, <laughs> I like these guys. So it's kind of like this new girl, like hanging out with these guys that didn't really want me to hang around with them. <laughs> and then I like gate crashed this house party that they were at. And there was this really like tall, funny, fun looking kind of guy. And I just started talking to him. And then he told me his name was Pinch and he's a DJ and he's got his own label and he's doing a party at the weekend and I could go down there if I fancied it and he'd put me on the list. So I just went to this party at a place called the Black Swan and I got there like super early and I think there was like no girls there or something and it was kind of like wet inside this garage. And But the sound was amazing. I hadn't heard music like that ever. Like it was a totally new sound. It was a totally new approach to DJing. It was like the most incredible, deep music, minimal music, way more minimal than techno or minimal techno. Like just the the soul of the music itself was so otherworldly. It felt like, you know, when you go into a church and you just feel like overwhelmed by the space and the history, it's like I would actually compare dubstep to, to that kind of feeling. Like it just totally overwhelms you and you just feel like in awe of everything around you and you forget all your like day-to-day -day stuff going on in your mind. And there's just some kind of clarity that I found in the music. And yeah, I was instantly hooked. You know, having come from the background of playing piano and doing creative music tech, and now you're talking about these spaces in, in Bristol, what was it about sound systems and club music that contrasted with where you'd come from? Uh, freedom. The freedom to take any sound and do a party in any space and be free from being a student or being classically trained or being an artist or even being a DJ. You know, it was just like people playing tunes that they'd cut onto dub plates and they weren't even really mixing it half the time and it was the freedom within the sound itself that really blew my mind because it didn't to me it didn't sound like it came from anywhere it didn't sound a bit jungly or you know and the thing that I loved the most is that each guy that would get up there and play music had their own sound they didn't try and follow on from the guy before or fit in and they were like encouraging each other there was this like competitions who could have like the sickest bass line or the loudest cut and all the guys just seemed to be so free at that point you know they were all getting to know each other and they were just making like wild free records and it wasn't about selling them it wasn't about having like this identity or profile I mean there's so many records that I heard back then that I know exist that you can't get anywhere you know and it's just free from everything free from the music industry free from the hype like the, back in that at that time you know and I really credit that experience if I may ex say it in such a way when I was there at those nights with those people around me I felt like all the things I felt and believed in became real or like I, they cemented like my philosophy, if you will, cemented itself like inside me. And that's never changed. And I've always held on to that. And that's always what's given me courage and helped me to be brave, you know, because I saw these guys doing it. And when I'm doing like my record label business now, or if I have you know, people come at me with different offers and ideas and they want to like push me onto their path and take me off my path. And because I've got this really strong set of beliefs now, which come from music itself or from these experiences itself. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing what I'm doing now. You know, I'm independent and I've got my own sound, which I worked really hard to create. And I've got different sounds in different worlds, which I've worked really hard to create. And that all comes back from from that time basically so Bristol yeah like 
to answer your question gave me literally everything in terms of like my artistry. It's, it's where it all kind of came to life there and became real. And I was 18, you know, that's when you start really deciding what you're about and what you want to do. And you get asked that a lot. Well, what do you want to study? Who do you want to be? Where do you want to live? You know, and so like all that just like happened. And I never let go of that. Like those are my roots, you know, that's the most important thing that I have. Speaking of roots, obviously the piano is pretty central to what you do. Was it your idea in the first place to start learning it? No, no, no. How did that work? I think I've been camping with my parents and my mum's artist friend, like just wanted to get rid of this piano. My parents thought it would be really cool to surprise me and put this piano in the house while we were on holiday. And, uh, you know, they were like, come round into the living room, come and look what we've got here. And like, I just hated it. I was really young and it was this horrible, terrifying antique like dark wood gothic piano with like evil flowers and candlestick holders and stuff and it sounded horrible like really spooky like a spooky film and some of the keys didn't work and stuff and just hated it like I didn't play it for like months my mum and dad were like oh stuck with this piano now. At, At what point did you get into studying specific aspects of composition like Were you doing things like harmony and counterpoint? You know, it doesn't sound like the most appealing thing for a child, but how did you respond to, you know, being taught these quite stringent theories? Um, I hated it. I used to lock my side of the car where my mum took me to my piano lessons and I used to cry and I used to put the seat down in the car and pretend that I wasn't in the car. My mum used to have to go and knock on my piano teacher's door and be like, yeah, she's in the car, she won't come out, like come and help her, like get her out of the car. Um, my mum would be like, you know, I paid three months in advance. You have to go now. And like, you're good at this. So do it. And I was terrified because I used to go there and there would be music put in front of me and I would have to learn, like just play. And I didn't want to play somebody else's music. I just wanted to play the piano, you know, and I no teacher showed me how to just play. And I hated it. I felt like it was torture. And I always got everything wrong. Like I couldn't read anything at that time. And I was really slow at sight reading. Yeah, I was just really miserable and didn't want to do it for years. So did the creative music tech degree seem more appealing in contrast? Um, Yeah, because when I was around age 14, I met a guy, Tim, who has had at that time a studio in my parents' house. And um, I lied and told him I was 16 and got myself a job in his studio. And he kind of just gave me stuff to borrow. Like I think my dad maybe found a four track cassette recorder in my auntie's house. And then Tim at his studio had uh, like different mixing consoles and a vocal booth. And I used to play cello at that time. And he had a lot of MCs and vocalists and different projects there. And I used to go and just like sing backing vocals or assist him with plugging stuff in. And through working with him, you know, I then got some skills and worked in a music tech shop in Milton Keynes, like a new music tech shop that opened in the snow dome where they have like this snow, snow, you can go snowboarding there and there's a cinema and there was a music tech shop and there was always like cool stuff, you know, in this new city. So I worked in a music tech shop and I just got really into recording and because I could sing, there was always like a drum and bass producer or a house producer, there was always somebody that wanted a vocal or you know, wanted to just hang out with a cool chick and be in the studio. So I kind of just was always like in studios or bedroom studios or at house parties. And there was a really nice like house scene in Milton Keynes as well for ages, like a house party scene. And then there was like the jungle rave scene, which was at like in like forests by the motorways and stuff. And yeah, all of that, all of that stuff, like everyone had a little recording set up somewhere going on so I was just always around that and and then I thought yeah like I like this I would like to know how to be a producer how to produce a record you know I would like to understand how to mix sounds and how to write beats and how to record bands and I really wanted to know how to do that because I felt like I can sing on my own I can play piano on my own I can practice all that stuff on my own but I really want to know you know how to work with recording equipment and how to approach making your your own sound. I also got really into David Bowie and I recognised as a teenager that he really had his own sound and he worked a lot with like short echoes and I did a lot of like research into how he was 
working and then I found out about the producers that he was working with so that whole concept of having a producer and going to them for their sound and for their studio and for their particular aesthetic you know so I became aware when I was about 14 15 16 that there was a thing called a producer you know and they were kind of the coolest ones of all <laughs> and yeah and then I thought right well I'm gonna go to uni and learn how to be a producer because they've got studios there and they can teach me how to do all that stuff and I can be a musician anyway on the side you know I can like teach myself how to play stuff and I was having like different music lessons and do you feel like that degree, you know, led you to approach sound in a different way that you hadn't thought about before? Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> so when I went there, I wanted to know how to make beats and make trip hop and hip hop and sing on it and work with rappers and make like, you know, massive attack records. That was my goal as an 18 year old. And then when I got there, so just to kind of explain the context, um, so like big, big lecture hall, you know, you're fresh from school in a nice little classroom and then you've got this huge lecture hall to sit in. You don't know anyone, you don't have any friends. You've just arrived in another city and it was basically like all guys. Like there was a few kind of girls dotted around that looked equally as scared as I felt and all the guys had hoods up and hoodies and laptops and like I had a pencil and a notebook <laughs> you know I was coming from this like art background I didn't have any equipment or gear and I didn't know how to use a sequencer or anything and then the first one of the first lectures was about digital signal processing and like I just wrote down like okay DSP and then after the workshop, I went to the library and I was like, hey, have you got any books about this? And they were like, yeah, the whole library is about that. Like, who are you? <laughs> what the hell are you doing here? That's when I really had to learn about not only about synthesis, but how to program my own synthesizer, you know? Yeah, there's pretty crazy maths in DSP work, isn't there? Yeah. I mean, we started with Max MSP when it was, you know, not beautifully integrated with Ableton as a wonderful plugin. It was like a really hard language for me. I found it really hard. And the exam was that we had like, you know, an hour to program a drum sampler in Max MSP or something like that. And it was really tough and I failed everything. But I had this talent and a sound. So the lecturers somehow helped me to stay on the course. But I was constantly like falling outside of the marks of everything. So... You know, these two backgrounds, like the classical tradition and, you know, what you learned doing creative music technology, you know, they're quite powerful, but they're also quite tight, ideologically speaking. Coming from that background, how did you integrate these with your experiences in Bristol's clubs? And did it seem obvious at the time that there was some potential crossover point that you could explore? Yeah, sure. Because the thing that you don't get in orchestral music or classical music, in my opinion, you don't get a massive range of sound experimentation. So of course you have modern and postmodern stuff, which was all about rebelling against harmony. But I feel like nothing has put it put it back together after that. So you have like classical music and then you have more experimental postmodern stuff. But nothing put those there was no movement that put those two things back into together again after that. And the orchestral world, you know, has stayed where it stayed. And then if you go to the other side with sound design and electronic music, I feel like often, I mean, it's very texture and genre and rhythm based because DJ culture has kind of completely encompassed everything to do with that now. And you can't really have electronic music without DJ culture anymore. But because that whole world is coming more from a production point of view rather than a composition point of view, that whole world doesn't really explore harmony in a way. And I recognise that if I could explore different sounds from the electronic sound design world, but also take my understanding of harmony from the classical world, then you immediately like open up this huge kind of open space that you can work within. And 
it makes sense to a lot of different people because you know music is all about uh what you've actually heard up until this day and your memories and, and your understanding of the music that you like before and everybody has heard cadences everybody's heard a major chord a minor chord everybody has heard a 909 you know these are all memories and understanding that we all have and you can just work in so so much more of a free way when you take what you like from both of these like idealistic worlds as you called it they are very idealistic and very closed but they're really easy to just like blow up into a million different pieces if you want to analyze it in that way and then you can just grab the pieces that make sense to you and maybe you only use those pieces for one record and then you throw it away and then you look a bit deeper or you ignore everything for a while and then you find new pieces you know so where's the pop music piece in this shattered mosaic so to speak you know because on on paper you know when you read about you know classically trained creative music tech etc cetera, etc cetera, it sounds like kind of unlikely that your music is kind of resolutely pop oriented quite frankly i don't care about the pop world at all and for me the pop world is actually more closely connected to the fashion industry and the beauty industry and i disagree with so many things that exist in that world uh in terms of beauty and women and sexism and i very much associate the pop world with things that i disagree with and don't like and i think that if anyone thinks that i am pop it's because of what they project onto me it's not because it's something that i'm actually trying to express I keep an eye on the pop world so that I know what they're exploiting and why and how because I don't want to be like that. <laughs> and I think it's really good to know the markets you don't want to be in and I think it's really good to understand the whole world of music and the pop industry is so good at basically brainwashing loads of people into buying one record and thinking that they like it. I think it's really good if you can understand how that industry works and then you can navigate your way around it or through it. So yeah, I'm not really I would prefer that people stopped thinking I'm pop because I have blonde hair and red lipstick and it's really not about that. <laughs> yeah. You know th- there was something of a gap between the time when you moved to Berlin and when you first started releasing music. Did you land on your feet in those first few months like what was the transition period like? Well, a really wonderful family in West Berlin took me in as an au pair. I mean just to explain when i was in bristol and i finished my degree um i got appendicitis i kind of think i brought that on myself because i didn't sleep well and i was really nerdy and i was very ambitious and i just wasn't taking care of myself and i kind of handed in my work ready to go to the hospital <laughs> kind of thing and i went straight to the hospital and then yeah unfortunately the surgeon uh got the operation wrong and nearly killed me and then a week later I had to have another emergency operation yeah it was really horrible and i think a lot of other people died under his care at that time and he just escaped back to whatever country he was from and uh, there was a big legal case and i was in bed like i was on my sofa watching big brother for like months you know and then when i got up and was able to go to the bank and tell them sorry i haven't been in touch i've been really sick you know and they were like okay no worries you have to upgrade your account and we're giving away free flights this month to postgraduate people and like where do you want to go and i thought okay i'm just going to go to berlin <laughs> and yeah and then i came to berlin and i kind of like found the will to live again you know i felt really good here it reminded me of prague a little bit um but it wasn't prague you know it was a, a new space for me and i just really liked it a lot and then um when i went back from that holiday i signed up to like a million au pair websites um one family took me and they were expecting another girl to come from canada and she'd broken her leg having a skiing holiday and they needed someone the following week so i put my piano on the street and i gave all my clothes away to my friends and i closed my bank account i made like a list of shutting down my life there you know and it was like really radical and really like harsh i was just like find my dad come get me put all the stuff i wanted to keep in the car 
and then went to the airport the next day and arrived wearing all of my favorite coats on an EasyJet flight with one case and started my life again with these kids like kind of staring at me like who is this crazy woman <laughs> that's taking care of us now and I worked as an au pair and I just started from scratch and it was kind of hard I had to learn German I didn't have any money and I didn't have any friends and I had like huge scars in my stomach which I didn't tell anyone about and I had to really like eat good and I wasn't eating any milk like dairy products and I wasn't drinking and I was recovering still but taking care of kids which is wicked so I was like teaching all the kids in the neighborhood music and I was eating ice cream with them and I didn't have to pay bills and it was like I somehow got myself into this perfect like rehabilitation kind of space you know and after like all the guys and music tech degree stuff it was great <laughs> six months of just doing music with kids you know so was it hard to get a sense of what you wanted to do with your music moving into a context with all these different set of inputs yeah yeah for sure I made really horrible music for a long time when I was doing my degree I actually didn't make any music at all because they put this horrible question into my mind of what is music because it was a sound conceptual approach to everything so the whole time I was studying I fell out of love with music and I didn't understand what music was anymore and I didn't make any records which actually really broke my heart because I wanted to go to uni to make loads of music and get really good so when I'd finished I could go out and get a record deal or set up a studio or do something you know and I had nothing when I left plus I'd been sick you know, it was like horrible. I, ha I felt like I had no soul, like nothing was left at the end of the degree. And yeah, and then I moved to Berlin and, you know, like after a few months, I found the whole like club scene here. And then I started trying to make techno and it was horrible. And yeah, I just couldn't find my way for a long time. But eventually you ended up cracking two of the most important music institutions in the city, you know, Native Instruments and Oscar Tone. There seems like a bit of a jump here. How did you get to a point where, you know, this English woman was suddenly part of these places? Well, the family um, decided not to keep me anymore because, you know, it's expensive to have an au pair. I looked around at what other jobs I could do here and I could speak German quite good by that point. And I saw that Native Instruments was here. I thought, oh, wow, that's pretty lucky. You know, that's the one place that I can get a job at. Um, so I applied to do an internship and like just blagged my way into the job I was like yep I can program a contact I can like do anything I just blagged it <laughs> and got myself the job there and then worked really hard you know at home all the time trying to learn how to use all of their stuff and program uh, presets and everything so yeah I got my foot in the door as an intern and then with Oscar Ton that was really through Nick Hupner. he's a really good friend of mine don't see him that much these days but yeah he was DJing one Sunday night in Panorama Bar and like it's the first time when I had some confidence to go behind the decks I thought yeah it's Nick I'm gonna go and hang out there and I do remember like kind of like putting my jacket under the decks and kind of like pushing the table and maybe the needle skipping or something like that and there was this like small moment where I heard like all the sounds actually in the club space itself, you know, apart from the music and just had this idea like this eureka moment of like, what if you recorded all the sounds in this massive club? And then I was thinking, yeah, but so what? You know, these concepts are great, but it's like all these people I studied at uni that have these concepts that never actually connect anything other than the academic world and I thought yeah stupid idea but then I was thinking about it and I was dancing and I thought no because this place is famous for its sound so what if you put this sound into a library and then gave it to every all the residents and then they could work with their own sound and I thought yeah this is cool because then you can like make music and like just I love to collaborate you know and I just thought it could be like just this huge 
collaboration thing. And at that time, because I was at Native Instruments and I was working as an intern, I wanted to prove to myself if I actually could be a sound designer or could be a producer, you know? So I wrote my ideas down and I showed it to Nick and Nick took me up with a meeting and then I went to the meeting and their engineers were there and the super lovely boss guys there and they were just like, yeah, sure you know like five within five minutes they were like yeah cool like let's try it at least you can just come here it's open every day you know we're all here working so I got my uh, Stefan Schmidt who's the like used to be the well, the founder of Native Instruments I asked him hey you want to come in Bergheim with me and he's a bit older and he was like yeah I've never been there before like let's go inside and got all his mics and a few of my other buddies from Native we all went there and just recorded loads of different stuff and that was just like a massive experiment, you know. And yeah, at that at that time, I mean, how old was I? Like 21 or 22? And I just wanted to see, like, I was going around telling everyone in Berlin, I'm a producer, I'm a producer, but I haven't really done anything, you know. So I thought, right, let's, let's do it. <laughs> it's a decent way to get into it. Yeah. <laughs> um, just to focus on the tech aspect for a minute, how did you find the culture that surrounds these sorts of companies in the industry at large? Well, I love that world because in that world, you find the biggest entrepreneurs and the biggest risk takers and the most interesting startups. And the music tech world has a much higher level of creativity than the music industry world. And in terms of how fast businesses can develop and new models can develop it's so much faster than the music industry generally speaking or the the world of labels as it were so I love working in the music tech world because there's just so much new technology being developed faster than people can make music with it and the interesting thing now is that I see the tech world it's so fast and the producer world it's kind of a different tempo because everyone's busy and they've got DJ gigs and it's just like a different world and the music tech world now in my opinion is kind of like slowing down and trying to imitate and study the musicians whereas like 10 years ago music tech industry was just coming up with new stuff and musicians were like desperate to learn and understand how to use it it was kind of the other way around and yeah so I love to stay in touch with the music tech world because it's the most innovative place you know and if you're in with those companies before the products are coming out like I love getting the 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 alpha and beta versions and I will always use them even though the companies always send me the official releases I never update anything unless I have to because the final product will always be you know kind of dumbed down to you know like or watered down or the presets that then come with it are like dubstep presets and stuff like that, which like, I don't want to use that stuff. I want to use the raw, innovative, early model that they had. So um, I'm very, you know, lucky that these places want to work with me and that I can still get in touch with that stage of its development, you know, not just kind of buy the plugins once they're on Tom Man or whatever. You you released your first two LPs on Tune. This is like while you'd been in Berlin for, for some time. Did you notice any differences in the industries between England and Germany at that point? Not really. Not really. I mean, at that time, I think in terms of communication, sure. Um, I think that working at Native Instruments in the office, speaking, being around a lot more German, and then having like, you know, lunchtime phone calls with Ninja Tune, A&R, and switching languages. I think like my English changed and I probably sounded quite kind of like hard or a bit more direct or something like that. And um, it was hard for me to switch between these two cultures on Skype or on the telephone and develop this relationship with NinjaTune and kind of keep my job at Native, you know. So I like personally found that quite hard, but I wouldn't say that I like business is business, you know. It's the same kind of everywhere. So, and those first two LPs received quite a lot of attention at the time. Uh, were you happy with how you were able to portray yourself and your music in that time? Yeah, totally. They gave me an advance. 
They let me do whatever I want. They let me work with whoever I wanted. I worked with Rashad Becker mixing the first album. And on the second album, Ninja had put me on tour with Amon Tobin, his big ISAM show. And Amon let me travel on his bus. And I went, you know, around North America and Canada and met Hank Shockley, who then was the executive producer and my mentor for everything through the second album process. Ninja would just like, all right, fine. It's maybe not what they wanted to do, but they always let me at least try things out and go for it. And they released those albums, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so absolutely everything is exactly how I wanted it. There were no tracks cut. There was no single that I didn't want as a single. There was no remix that I didn't like at the time. I hooked up most of the remixes myself. Cover art I did myself. Or like I didn't do it, but you know, I picked who I worked with. Same with the videos, the directors I all knew through people in Berlin or the fashion world. And yeah, they were cool. They were everything that they promised they would be as an indie label. You started your own label in 2014. Yeah. I'm just wondering where the impetus for taking that into your own hands came from. I mean, yeah, they they didn't want to work with me anymore. So I decided to carry on. The interesting thing is, had that not have happened to me, I would never have written the symphony. And I think that every artist should go through something like that, where you're picked up so high, so fast, and thrown to the ground, <laughs> you know, because creativity and destruction belong together somehow, in my opinion. And I would never have written the symphony, you know, because I was back in Berlin on my own. I had nothing around me anymore I had like this freedom that I was wishing for that whole year it was like I want to do a piano album you know and I went to them about the piano album they were like no find a classical label and I was like I don't want to be on another label and another label and all this accounting all this stuff going on you know and I was thinking in the last five years oh, I want to do a symphony I want to do a symphony but then it's like everyone knew me as a dubstep producer and that's that horrible thing as an artist you know it's like you've got your own thing going on inside and then you have to kind of fight with how people have labeled you and what people understand and that's cool because you can't expect every person out there that doesn't know you to understand that you are able to write a symphony you know you can't it's fine being labeled because that's just how things work you know but, you know, in a nutshell, I think they knew that I wanted to go and they did the the kind thing and they let me go and they were very, very kind about it and just kind of wished me luck, you know, but that was still hard. So I had this freedom that I thought I wanted and it was amazing, but it was terrifying. <laughs> it was just like, oh my God, you know, I didn't know at that point if anybody liked like really liked me or liked me just because I was with Ninja and like actually liked Ninja I mean it's Ninja tune you know and um yeah I had to basically uh <laughs> I don't know I just had like pure nerves I was just living on like adrenaline and like terror <laughs> and but because I was in that space you know mentally whatever and I had nobody telling me what to do or trying to advise me I was able to just do what I wanted and so I sat in Berlin and I decided to write a symphony and then I had no label and no investor no money nobody to bail me out or advance me money so I turned to Kickstarter and my fans that's the thing I went from one office of people supporting me to actually my entire audience supporting me so I was completely destroyed and broken in one sense but then what I regained after that you know was just like I still it's still too fresh for me to even understand how important that is because I feel like this symphony is the most important thing that I've ever written and done and 
that's been paid for by my audience. I mean, can you, had somebody have told me that like five years ago, like, hey, this is where everything's going to go. There's going to be this thing called Kickstarter, you know, and you're going to do a symphony. You know, I just would never, but I would have been like, you're mad. And yeah, I mean, my life, whether I like it or not, is definitely, you know, the art, an artist's way. And I find that kind of hard to deal with and hard to cope with. I would love to have just stuck with a label for like a million years and had like this, you know, normal infrastructure around me with management and all that stuff. And I see it working for so many other people. And I'm always every day thinking, why doesn't this work for me? Why doesn't this work for me? Why? What can I change? What is it about me that doesn't fit here? You know, and I'm always trying to answer these questions, but there is no answer. And um, I have to just carry on now. The interesting thing is, is that from the outside looking in, the way I perceived it was like, now she's doing exactly what she wants to do. She's like taking this in her hands and now she can release an album of piano miniatures. Mm -hmm. And it seemed like the complete opposite. Like it seemed like a move of confidence. Yeah. Yeah. Well... I think it's not so much confidence. I think it's just love. Like I love what I do and I see that my audience loves what I do and we all just love it, you know, and I want to just do what I love, you know, and um, if that seems, you know, confident or whatever, that's kind of like a byproduct. I mean, I guess I am confident because I'm doing all these things, but you know, the truth is, is that I just love what I'm doing. And I have like a very private inner world with my music, you know, and I know that I have to like, go out on stage and do interviews and kind of like, go out into the world. But I find it really hard. You know, I was anticipating coming here, and what I wanted to express or not express. And I find I find it really hard to go into the world and do what I do. But at the end of the day, I just love it. You know, I love it so much. And that's what balances the fear, as it were, you know. So you were just mentioning it before, your How to Make a Symphony project. So it started with a Kickstarter campaign and you needed to raise 20,000 euros. And that was and that was successful. And then you recorded with I got twenty five thousand euros. Twenty five thousand. It was overfunded. Yeah. And literally just a few weeks ago, you finished the recordings with the Czech Metropolitan Orchestra. Yeah. But there's a woman who's very central to this whole project. Can you can you tell us a bit about that? Michaela Shumava. She is an amazing soprano that I met doing Dva, my second album with Ninja. Um, Ninja gave me a budget to record some strings for that album. And I think they anticipated more like having strings in the choruses and stuff. But I just blew the whole budget on one strings piece, Dem Worlds. Um, McLaren used it for like one of their adverts, which was pretty cool. And that's when I met Michaela. She came to a recording session and I recorded a piece called Hush with her. And I just fell in love with her. She became my muse for everything. She just has an incredible voice. I think she has the sweetest, most sensitive soul because whenever she is even singing, you know, really loud and really boldly in an in an opera style, it still doesn't sound to me like traditional opera singers. There isn't this ambitious, aggressive, egotistical diva sound because she doesn't have that inside her as a person, you know. She started as a choir girl and got to the front row because of her talent and her kindness and her independence, you know. And I just fell in love with everything about her and just decided that she should sing her own music. She should sing her own stuff. She shouldn't just be singing Dvorak, which is amazing. But it's like, come on, you know. She should have her own stuff. She's she's an she's an artist, and in that one like session, I could see that like she she kind of like took the music from my hands and crossed out loads of stuff and asked me like really tough questions about the meaning of everything and the poetry, and she changed loads of things and she kind of improvised. And classical musicians don't do that; they don't walk into a session they're being paid to play something how it is on the paper and then just like turn it upside down and do whatever they want. And I just thought, wicked, <laughs> she's amazing, and. 
So around that time of the second album, I'd already said to her, hey, can I write some music for you? And she said, yes. And then we didn't know what to do together. And she was like, please don't write me pop songs. And I was like, I hate pop music, but I can't write opera and I don't know how we're going to do this. And then, yeah, when I was free to go from Ninja and do my own label and I thought, yeah, I'll do a symphony and I'll put her in the middle of it. Just her. So no choir, no stuff. And she said, yeah. And so I began composing and I went back to my music teacher from school and he transcribed all the horrible MIDI files that I was sending him, <laughs> my like MIDI orchestra, and he made it into a beautiful score. And we met many nights and drank a lot of whiskey and went through the music for about two years. And yeah, so that's that was like going on in the background. And then I was going over to Prague and the main... The boss of the orchestra, Radek, took me round to many different studios in Prague and I picked Czech Radio because it's beautiful and huge with a huge hall and it had just been refurbished and they worked with these amazing huge Genelec speakers which I love and know really well and everything just like fell into place. So I found the studio and the hall and the desk and everything halfway through composing. So I finished the music with that place in my mind and I had Michaela in my mind and had the sound of her voice. And she came to Berlin and did rehearsals with me and my music teacher who conducted the piece. Yeah, it, it, it's just a complete... And then, yeah, the fans paid for it and they hadn't even heard any music. They were just like, yep, here you go, here's money. And like, not even I knew at that time how it was going to sound because it was all just in my imagination. So it's like such a crazy project to do considering what I've done up until then, you know? And And that's when I really felt like the beautiful side of freedom, not just feeling lost you know, but this, I felt the reward somehow, like all this suffering and struggling that I'd been doing and experimenting and failing and picking myself up again and finding a new direction. And, you know, I felt like some form of satisfaction finally after like 15 years. I feel like, okay, you know, if I died tomorrow, it would be fine because the symphony is there, you know. I feel like, ah, oh, thank God, like I finally got to that place where it's just purely about music. It's just about music. There's no other motives, you know. I don't have any other motives other than doing music. And it's such a, like, sweet kind of naive project in a way, you know. There's, there's, that's it. It's just, like, me and my friends and my fans and this huge symphony. So, so yeah, I, I'm, like, I'm, I'm taking days off now, which I've never done ever the last 10 years I'm like having a day off and not feeling guilty like oh my whole career is going to fall apart if I'm not doing something right now it's like oh, I have a day off yeah listen to my symphony <laughs> you know so it's definitely like a new I don't know just like a new place I'm at right now with everything have you had any contact with your backers yeah loads I update them I try and update them whenever I have something interesting to show them and there was a guy from Los Angeles who backed two and a half thousand euros to come to the recording. Unfortunately, he couldn't come in the end. But I was talking to him really, like a lot because I was booking his flights and things like that. And he was just so surprised that because he's been following my work for years and he's just like, I feel really bad. Like you're Emika and you're booking my hotel room. Like this is so bizarre kind of thing. And then some of the prizes were to that I would remix your music or I would record a vocal for your music or we could do a Skype tutorial together. So I've been having a lot of contact with the fans and that's changed my whole approach to releasing music. Like I've got another album which I finished already but I want to work out a way to bring the audience into the music before it's in the shops and Kickstarter I really need to shake the hand of the guy that came up with the idea for that platform because I think this one platform has radically improved so many people's lives in terms of what people can create now and offer other people customers and the freedom that that platform gives you. It's just like, you know, I think the music press should start reporting more on artists from Kickstarter. And I think that the whole music industry should open itself up to crowdfunding and it should just become like a really normal way of working as an artist but it undermines the pre-existing structures yeah which is great 
you know, I mean, the the anyone or anything that creates a system, writes it down in a contract, and gives it to somebody else and tells them this is a standard and this is normal. Anybody that does that, you know, also should be able to be criticised. Systems are always there to be broken in one way or another. Otherwise, what's the point of them, you know? And it's the creative industry, so I feel like the systems should be destroyed as fast as everything else is rebuilding itself. Those systems should change. And if they're not, then it's maybe a sign that they don't fit the creative industry generally because they don't change. And there's people there that don't want them to change. So don't work in music, you know, because music is all about improvisation and collaboration and expressing yourself. And yeah, I just feel like it's time that those systems were challenged with new